following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight. We're glad that you're here. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah, please. This evening in Isaiah 55. This passage uh, offers a couple of difficulties that I'd like you to think carefully about as we read it. Maybe I'll ask you a quiz question or two afterwards. How about that? Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Just pause right there. It's interesting how he's offering God is the people to get something free of charge. Sounds kind of like a good salvation, doesn't it? That uh, does not cost People try to do things to have religious satisfaction with all kinds of cost, but it's not the right thing. So he says, here in your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Okay, my first quiz question is going to be, what is that? Okay, so think about that. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Second question is going to be, what is the purpose of verses 8 and 9 in the context? What does it express? Can you explain that? Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are uh, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and does not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands." Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. All right, sure mercies of David. Anybody have an idea? Jackson does. God's covenant with David. Yay, very good answer. That's excellent, yeah. You tell me later if you saw that in your study Bible, okay? (laughs) Oh, he double-checked it, yes. Always very important to double-check your answers. (laughs) Uh, What about the next part, verses 8 and 9? 
somebody else, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways not your ways. How does that fit into the context? What is that? How would you explain that? Anybody? And, and so the significance of verses 8 and 9. So Kevin is saying that uh, it goes back to verses 6 to 7 about seeking the Lord, about being saved, uh, turning from his wicked way, repenting. And then it says at the end of verse 7, and, to, and return to our, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. When people, when people turn away from their sin, God pardons. We would expect that there's no mercy for people who are wicked, right? God's ways are different than ours, though. Um, Ours, humanly speaking, of course. Now, as believers, we understand this thought intuitively. God has expressed his, his uh, mercy toward us, and we understand and are grateful for that. But in the world, that's a little different. You know, Vengeance is more the order of the day, not mercy. And so God's ways are, are higher. You know, the, uh, Ezekiel has a number of uh, passages that are related to this. You know, if the if the righteous person turns from his righteousness and becomes wicked, then God will punish him. But if the wicked turns from his wicked ways and becomes righteous, then God will pardon him for that. Uh, so it's a different economy than what maybe the world, what for sure the world would be involved in. So that is good. Very interesting. Uh, how about this? Uh, Maybe a young person here. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. What do you think that means? Or what, what is that in terms of uh, literature or English? Or you know, what would you call that in English, in your English class? Trees clapping their hands. Anybody? Metaphor. Very good. Was that the librarian? Yeah. <laughs> John? Nature will flourish. That's good. It's a metaphor for the flourishing of nature, the happy, the happy countenance, as it were, of nature, as if nature has, has a countenance, has a smile. This is speaking of what was going to happen during the Millennial Kingdom and the great agricultural prosperity that will be observed there. There will be no shortage of... Uh, of rain, well, unless you're a nation like at the end of Zechariah that doesn't come up to the Lord's house to worship at the Feast of Tabernacles, then on those nations it says God will send no rain, but on other nations there will be prosperity. Isaiah 55. Okay, let's turn our attention to our series in Matthew then, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This morning we ran uh, short on bulletins and sermon notes, and so we were scrounging around trying to get some other ones for people who asked uh, late in the morning or this evening. But those are available online, fbcaa.org slash docs, docs. You can find it in the menu as well, but that's a shortcut to it. And you can find all the bulletins and all of the sermon notes, uh, well, most of the sermon notes. So I didn't print these out tonight, but they look exactly like I do, they do in the morning. I did the same, very same thing. So we have five or six pages of notes here that you can uh, look at if you would like to do that. 
after the service or this coming week to uh, look up some verses or something. All the material is here. Matthew chapter 6, we're in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is an expression of what it looks like for a person to be repentant. Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 3 emphasize that the summary of Jesus' message and John the Baptist before him is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 5, he commences to preach a lengthy sermon, starting with the Beatitudes to his disciples and the multitudes listening on. And he's going to express to them, he is expressing to them, what it looks like for somebody to be repentant. In fact, if you think with me with back to John's uh, initial speech in chapter 3, uh, when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then he talked to the Pharisees, Remember the brood of vipers, he says, and he tells them to do works befitting repentance or bear fruit in agreement with repentance. And that's what the sermon 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew is encouraging God's people to do. The Lord begins with blessings pronounced on those who have certain spiritual attributes. Those attributes or characteristics are Uh, as I say, spiritual in nature, not physical. So we're not talking about being uh, poor or being sad about uh, loss of a a loved one or something like that. We're primarily talking about spiritual characteristics here, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, that is humility, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. So he expresses what it's like to be a believer, a repentant believer, doing deeds in keeping with repentance They're in the Beatitudes. And then he talks about our being salt and light. This is directly applicable to us as believers. We are to be uh, salty and light. Salt being primarily in this passage having to do with flavor because he says if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? But also salt has a preservative effect and that also comes along with the salt and If the salt has lost its flavor, it's probably lost its preservative effect as well. But anyway, with no distinction between the believer and the world, there really is no point. There is no no evidence of repentance. And then the Lord talks about fulfilling the law and encouraging the fulfilling of the law instead of the breaking of the law because if we don't, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to get increasingly into what does it look like for our, our repentance and the resulting righteousness, what does that look like if we are to be people of God and uh, fit for heaven? Remember, the scripture does say, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's in Hebrews. Of course, that holiness is worked by God, wrought by God from the beginning of our salvation through to the end of our sanctification and finally glorification. So it's not really our deeds per se that uh, you know, get us to that holy status. It's God's work in us working out our salvation. And then the Lord talks about a number of um, ways in which we are to exhibit this righteousness. The first of them has to do with murder, murder beginning in the heart of a person, in anger, And so he gets right down to the very baseline information that we need to know to know what does real righteousness look like. It looks like uh, loving our our enemies. It looks like uh, not making oaths. 
certainly not false oaths, but not oaths at all. Uh, it looks like treating others with uh, kindness instead of vengeance. It looks like keeping our marriage vows. Uh, it looks like being pure in our hearts with regard to the matter of adultery. And that really rounds out chapter number five, ending with this high calling, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is full of conviction here. I don't know any other way of really boiling it down. If you're, if you're a believer and you're reading these things, you're saying, there's some areas I need to tune up on. I'm not walking perfectly with the Lord. And, and thank him for these instructions for us. Then the Lord opens chapter 6 and instructs us how to conduct our oh, good works, we could say. Um, first of all, in chapter 6, uh, 1 through 4, he talks about charitable deeds. Chapters five, uh, Verses uh, 5 through 13 in chapter 6, the prayer, the model prayer we called it, not the Lord's prayer, not the, could be the disciples' prayer, but it's a model, it's a template. This template is to be followed, I'll say loosely. It's not to be followed in the way that the Lord prohibits earlier in the passage where he says, don't be using vain repetitions as the heathen do because they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. So we shouldn't use this prayer in the way that is how God is displeased with the prayers of, of those who are, as he says, heathen idolaters who chant prayers over and over or use rote prayers or memorized prayers. They don't really mean anything to them after they have used them for a while. Uh, that's not the kind of prayer that he's talking about. And then he's going to start in verse 16 to talk about the idea of fasting. So merciful deeds, prayer, and fasting, in each case, well, let's go to 6.16. In each of these cases, he repeats the same principle. You'll see it again when I read 16 through 18. He says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. See, the, the hypocrites are just like those in verse 5. People that love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. They love to, to give with a, a trumpet blown before them as they make their processional to the giving box. Do not be like them with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Okay, so the same principle, fasting is to be done discreetly. It's to be done unobtrusively, privately, without calling attention to yourself. Remember the same about prayer? Instead of praying on the street corners for men's recognition, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Or about charitable deeds, he says, take heed that you do not do them before people, so do not sound a trumpet, as the, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that it may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So you keep those deeds private, you keep prayer 
private. Well, people may see that you have done a good deed, but you don't do it for that purpose. People may know that you pray, but you don't pray for that purpose. People may know that you're fasting. I mean, it would be almost impossible for your spouse to not know that you are fasting, right? Or somebody in your family, but that's the issue is you're not doing it to be uh, seen as religious or super special in their sight, nor in anyone else's sight. So three times the Lord repeats this principle. Certainly gives us the notion that God doesn't want us parading ourselves around. Fasting the hypocrite way here, making yourself look like you're fasting, shows that the motivation behind the fasting is what? It's to please people. And actually, the deeper motivation is to please yourself. You want that good feeling of pleasing people and getting recognition from them. So really, when you're fasting and making your face look all sad and, and not you know, making yourself look well-kept, what you're doing is you're saying, I want recognition from them. It's not that I want to do something for God. It's I want to do something for myself, seeking the attention of others, and this makes them feel happy. It almost, it should, I guess, to us, feel like a very childish approach to life. You know, kids do things to get attention, right? When you have guests over at the home, do the kids behave differently? Yeah, no, not Adore yet, right? But uh, she will. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, and, and, and numerous other examples I'm sure you can think of in, in uh, funny things in your life with, with small children, but uh, we're not to be doing religious activity for the attention of others, uh, as if that you know, makes us feel happy to have that attention. This is where religion has become a tool to magnify oneself rather than one's God. Fasting privately, on the other hand, the Christian way, not the hypocrite way, the Christian way shows that your devotion is to the one who sees everything, the one who will reward you accordingly. So practically, what this means, our Lord kind of puts it in real basic terms. He says, when you anoint, I'm sorry, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you not appear to men to be fasting. So, you know, take a shower, comb your hair, get dressed, shave, wash your face, put on your makeup, or whatever you normally do so you don't look haggard and depressed. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, I know you do. Put a real smile on your face, not a sad countenance. Yes, we can choose how our face looks. You should be a person who's known to have a joyful countenance because you have an internal, deep internal reason to be joyful. People out in the world may not have that, don't have that reason, do not have that reason to be joyful, but you do. And that should be seen on your countenance. Look normal, even if you are fasting. Do not make a subtle or not so subtle difference about your appearance so people will notice and ask you what is going on so that you get that recognition that you're flesh, your sinful nature craves. So that's kind of the basics of our Lord's teaching on fasting from this passage. But there are many questions that arise about fasting. Over the years, I've received some of those, as I indicated earlier today to you. 
And so I wanted to ask or answer, ask and answer some of those. Should you fast? Must you fast? And even before we answer that question or those questions, we should answer this question. What exactly is fasting? What is fasting? Must we fast? Should we fast? So let's answer those questions. First of all, what is fasting? Fasting is associated with mourning, often with distress, with prayer, and bad things, not happy things. So, for example, in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5, Jonah comes in looking very probably strange after being bleached out with stomach acid and a fish for a while and comes into Nineveh and he says, repent, you know, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. And what happens? The people of Nineveh repented. That was, that was more shocking than being swallowed by a fish. <laughs> you know, Jonah couldn't believe it. But they fasted and put on sackcloth and repented and and they said, well, perhaps God will relent of the disaster that he has planned for us. And he did. He had that in his plan. That was part of his plan to teach Jonah and us a lesson about his care, even for those that are not the people of God. So there was a distressing problem in the life of these people. Their appetite was taken away. They, they wanted to fast. And it was a sign of grief or distress or repentance. Alternatively, fasting may not be a, you know, really kind of associated with a bad like announcement like that, but it may be just an act of devotion to God where you want to pray about things in a focused manner. Fasting is not an involuntary lack of food. Involuntary lack of food. That would be malnutrition or starvation. That would not be fasting. Fasting is not, like this phrase, I think I'll give up chocolate for Lent. That's really tough, you know. Sorry you have to sacrifice so much. Um, Or I'm going to fast from video games for a while. That's not fasting. Okay, that's not fasting. Fasting has to do with a choice not to eat food. Food, of course, is one of the essential things we need for life in the short term, in addition to water and, and if inclement weather, shelter, right? I mean, if you don't have shelter and it's freezing cold outside, within a number of hours you perish. If you don't have water within a number of days, you perish. If you don't have food within a number of maybe weeks, you perish. You need food. In the absence of food, however, we can focus time and energy and devotion on prayer to God instead of food preparation and other things, uh, affairs of this life, if you will. If we choose not even to eat, that means that we're setting aside everything, even one of the most important things, in order to give our attention to the things of God. So that's what fasting is, the voluntary choosing not to eat food for the purposes of devotion or Focused prayer because there's some kind of problem or something in your life. And that is what fasting is. It's not the kind of involuntary thing. Or I was thinking of the the Pharisee. Remember uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple and the Pharisee, you know, prays thus with himself. 
By the way, speaking of prayer, that's what his prayer was. He was praying to himself. He was his own God, lowercase g. And he was praying, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this guy over here. You know, I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all I possess. I'm such a good person. Thank you, God, for making me a good person. Fasting twice a week. Why did he do that? Was that in the Old Testament? Was that in the law? No, that was a man-made tradition. And to, to command a people to fast twice a week was not in the law nor in the New Testament at all. Now, as to the question, must I fast? Must I fast? Fasting is assumed. It's not taught as a precept that you must uh, obey or on any regular basis. Fasting is assumed because this life has problems. The Lord says, what, in verse 16? Moreover, if you fast, no, he kind of indicates a, a an assumption that it, you will be participating in it when you fast, when, not if. But the question is, must I? And I'll answer it this way. Most references to fasting are in the Old Testament. There are some in the Gospels. I notice that all of the uses of the word fast in the New King James Version after the book of Acts have nothing to do with fasting with from food. They have to do with holding fast the gospel, holding fast. That's a different thing altogether, holding firm. There are only three uses of the word fast in the book of Acts. I'll have you turn to one of them, Acts 13. That's actually where two of the uses are, Acts 13, verses 2 and 3. It says in verse 1, actually, of Acts 13, Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then it goes on and names them. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, or Black, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, so those five men. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. These have to do with the solemn responsibility of the church in appointing missionaries and pastors. You don't want to do that lightly, do you? To appoint them to their service is an extremely important job and an extremely important step. And this calls for the utmost devotion to God. And I think that's why they were involved in fasting and prayer. But it doesn't command us to do that. It is, a, it is an apostolic example, however, isn't it? So we should take it very seriously. And I'll explain how I think about that as we unfold the rest of this message. There's no instruction on how long to fast, how often to fast, fasting twice a week as the old Pharisaical practice went. But as I said, that was man-made. And so I take it that fasting, even though is helpful in situations like this one that we read in Acts 13 is not required in the church age. There's no instruction in the epistles, no instruction even in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, Romans, about fasting or how often or what, it, what you should do about that or anything. And this lines up nicely 
with our understanding of the grace principle of living under the New Testament. I've shared this with you, and we've put it to practice in certain ways in our church when we come to questions of differing opinions on things. We are not under a legalistic regime. That is, you don't enforce sanctification, for example, by laws. That's not a helpful approach to sanctification. Uh, Sanctification comes by grace through faith. We're not ruled by law, but by grace and love. And so the commands, even the commands of the New Testament, they are commands. But therefore, new-natured people, that is, people who are believers in Christ and serve as guides to what the new nature wants us to do anyway. His commands are not burdensome, remember? It's not like a burdensome law that's forced down upon us that we don't want to participate in. These, are, these, these grace instructions, which are commands, are things that we willingly and voluntarily and desire to participate in. We don't see such, even such commands about fasting. And so it must be in the realm that we understand in which this is kind of a grace, a matter of grace. Somebody wishes to fast, that's fine. Somebody wishes not to fast, that's fine as well. Now, fasting now, as we look at some of the New Te- other New Testament portions, fasting was completely inappropriate when Christ was present with the disciples. Remember, Pharisees, John's disciples fast often. And and they said, your disciples, Lord, don't fast at all. Why? And the Lord said, well, you know, when people go to a wedding, do they fast? No, they enjoy the food. They are happy because there's the bride and there's the bridegroom and they're having a wonderful time. It's not a time for fasting. It's not a time for mourning. Fasting at a wedding is inappropriate. But he said, when the Son of Man is taken away from them, then they will fast. You know, they wouldn't have even had to have been induced to fast. After they saw the Lord hanging upon a cross, beaten nearly to death, and then finished off on that cross, do you think they'd be very hungry anyway? No, they'd be sick. You would be sick to your stomach. I've gotten that. You... Maybe you have as well. Reading some of the accounts of the gruesome death that our Lord suffered, thinking of the medical aspects of that. Look at that JAMA article that was written back in the 80s on what happened to our Lord. It just puts a pit in your stomach. You don't feel like eating. I can't imagine how they felt. They would fast when he was taken away from them. It was appropriate for them to fast then because that was a time of sorrow. That's in Matthew uh, nine, uh, chapter uh, 9, I think. Let's see here. We'll go back and just read that. We've already gone through the substance of it. but Yeah, that's right. Matt, he's questioned about fasting. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So here fasting is associated with mourning. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Then he talks about the unshrunk cloth on the old garment where the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. What he's teaching these folks is that we're in a new regime now. There's a new system. 
Okay, we could say it in a kind of a crass way. You know, there's a new sheriff in town, and things are done differently now. You don't take some of the old stuff and try to patch onto it some of the new stuff and get a, a system that works. There's kind of a this definitive break between the Old Testament under the law and the new covenant under Christ. All right, so fasting. Now, after the resurrection, John 16 indicates the disciples were full of joy. So once again, they did not fast then. They were very happy. And in fact, that day when they knew that the Lord had been raised from the dead, what happened in the evening? They ate, and the Lord ate with them. So the general religious atmosphere at that time was not one of fasting. Where do we sit in the kind of religious flow, ebb and flow of things as they've happened throughout history? Well, we sit in the period of time, which, well, we call the last days, but we're in the period of time when we know that Jesus is alive. We know he's at the right hand of God. We know he's advocating for us. We know that he's made way for our sins to be forgiven. Um, we, uh, we know he's awaiting his enemies to be made his footstool. What's there to be sad about? Nothing in that sense. So we should have a happy demeanor. We should be pleasantly happy and joyful because the Lord has redeemed us. We're his children. He's sanctifying us. He's forgiven us. And all those blessings and benefits that we've looked at over the years here together from this pulpit. So there's no, uh, like with the disciples, when the Lord was taken away, uh, there was reason to fast. But when they were with him, or after he was raised from the dead, there was no reason for them to fast then, in, in of course, that context. Now, there may be other difficulties that come along that induce you to want to spend some time fasting and praying. So, must I fast? My answer is no. You do not have to fast in order to have or at any you know, regular interval, in order to be pleasing to God. There's no law about that in the New Testament. Um, should you fast? Should you fast? I'll give you a few practical pieces of advice. Short fasts are appropriate or fine for most people, and, and some have even said they offer health benefits. My purpose is not to touch on that today. Leave that to your own research. But because we need to eat fairly frequently, uh, we're, we're not able to fast like Gila monsters are. Okay, where did I come up with that? Well, I just happen to remember in my mind, Gila monsters can go months without eating food. They store fat in their tail, and they call upon it as they need, and it may be weeks and weeks and weeks before they eat. Now, when they do eat, however, they can eat up to one-third of their body weight, so... If you're a 150-pound person, that means you could sit down and eat 50 pounds worth of food. Ugh, that's a little bit much. We're not that way, so we do need to have regular sustenance. Um, Maybe you have health issues related to hyper or hypoglycemia or other things that I don't know anything about, and you should be then, therefore, very cautious. Maybe you have to avoid fasting altogether. Uh, Severe diabetes, you may have major problems if you try to uh, avoid food for any length of time. So seek out your doctor's opinion in that case. And you know yourself, so act wisely. Also, fasting, the answer, should I fast, depends on your private 
desire and your estimation of the need for a focused time of confession or intercession to God. You know the circumstances that you face. You know that you have some calamity upon you or your family, some difficult situation. Therefore, you know yourself when it might be useful to fast. And maybe, even though I'm saying to you, you you don't have to fast, maybe just thinking about this will get you kind of, you know, get your brain turning, get the, you know, get the gears turning a little bit and make you think like it did for me when I thought through this message, like, hmm, maybe I should think about this from time to time. Although you know the Lord and he's resurrected and You know your ultimate destination is heaven, so you can have a joyful countenance. Maybe there are times of great peril or difficulty in this life, and any any time is okay for fasting, but especially these hard times are appropriate for a fast. Now, if you're fasting, you should also be praying. Fasting by itself is not a thing. Does that make sense? It's always associated with prayer in the Bible always associated with seeking the face of God. In, three, in Acts three times, it's associated with prayer and serving God, never apart from them. And I make this note quickly as well. The paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount on fasting comes right after the paragraph that's about what? Praying. <laughs> so even the Lord puts them right next door to each other when he's speaking about them. Now, I share with you just a brief, very brief personal experience, although I note that my personal experience isn't worth much, not compared to Scripture. Uh, and, you know, I think, well, should I even share it because it's supposed to be private, you know? But let me, let me see if I can touch on this without violating what the Lord is saying. Personally, I feel like my metabolism is not a great match for fasting long term. But or in longer terms, I should say, and I haven't trained myself that way. But I have infrequently in the past made time away from meals to express devotion to God. I remember one time in particular, now I'm talking about some years ago, uh, in which I spent uh, the morning and afternoon of Good Friday fasting and devoting to the Lord uh, for what he has done for us. And I enjoyed a really nice fellowship with God and Holding back on food helped me spend that time to remember how the Lord died for us. But in recent years, again, my personal experience, I have not done fasting. In fact, I should say perhaps to my shame and to those of us who have had this experience, I distinctly remember a time when I was eating a little bit too much and I did not feel hunger. Get this for days or weeks at a time. I think it's probably good for us to have some hunger pangs when mealtime comes around. But we are so well uh, supplied and so regular or regimented in our schedule that our body gets used to this kind of routine. You know, it's, it's 7 o'clock breakfast, noon lunch, 6 o'clock dinner, 10 o'clock snack, and you just repeat, and you never run into a time when you say, man, and you begin, I I remember like, huh, what's this feeling I'm having in my stomach when I I would eat a little less? 
by the next meal, it's like, oh, that's, remember, that's what hunger feels like. That's not a bad feeling. That's a good feeling. I wonder if that's our case, and I wonder how that indicates of our spiritual nature when we have that circumstance in our life. Preparing for this message caused me to think about it more, but since there again is no instruction on the matter in the New Testament, nor a command to fast, I do not believe regular fasting is necessary for our spiritual life or sanctification. You know, just thinking of a similar thing in the New Testament, are we ever told about uh, casting out demons or diagnosing demon possession? No. Now, we would say that would indicate to us we're not to be involved. No instruction on that matter in the New Testament, so we just back off entirely. We have to have wisdom as to when an issue that's not mentioned in the New Testament is one we back away from entirely or one that we practice by God's grace according to the rule of grace, uh, you know, however frequently we decide to in um, our life, in our spiritual life. I am quick to think, though, about our private spiritual life and ask ourselves, how are we doing? Do we need a tune-up in our private spiritual life? Perhaps with some fasting that would help us to focus on prayer. I, I fear that maybe some of us are prayerless people, prayerless people. If we don't, we don't participate in corporate prayer, maybe we don't have much substantive prayer in our homes. I mean, I'm not counting like, you know, thank you for this food kind of prayer something more substantive than that, more, more time-consuming, if you will, than that. So maybe a little checkup. Uh, I'm, I just threw this in my notes here. Maybe it's a little bit random for you, but I'm not in favor of making people fast, other people fast, when you're trying to fast. So, you know, by mutual consent, family members may fast together, but it wouldn't be prudent to, uh, you know, say, well, mom and dad are going to fast and you kids are on your own, you know, uh, good luck, uh, forcing you to fast as well. You have to keep in mind the different capacities that uh, young people have for, um, how can I say, the length of time they can be without food before they become grumpy. <laughs> yes. Uh, perhaps this message is also causing you to think as well. Do you have a problem with this matter of fasting, you say, no, I would never do that. Or perhaps you have a problem with gluttony. I don't know if I should say this. <laughs> Dr. Sachs taught me this principle years ago, this idea, and I've, I've, I've kind of held on to it. You know, people in our country, you know, who complain about their provision, they don't have enough you know, but they have a belly that comes out to here, they have plenty. Because if they didn't have enough, they would be skinny. Does that make sense? We, we are gluttonous people. And then we complain that we don't have enough, but we're, we're not starving in, those, in that particular kind of case. Do you have a problem with gluttony? Are you wasting food? by eating too much at one sitting? Do you see what I did there? 
When I said wasting food, you probably thought taking food off the plate and just throwing it in the trash. No, I'm saying wasting food by eating too much at one sitting. Do you eat to live or do you live to eat? Do you even think about giving up something of value? Food, in this case, remember that's fasting, but anything else. Do you give up anything to show piety, worship, devotion to God? Do you give up anything to, to, to do extra prayer? You know, would you give up the football game to pray to God? Not to mention giving up on food. Are you praying regularly and fervently without the aid of fasting? Perhaps that would help you to do so. Now, go back to the text in Matthew 6. The Lord says regarding this about the reward the Father who is in the secret place, he, he who sees in secret, will reward you. And again, that word openly is a textual variant. You want to note that. It's really, he's not, he's not going to reward us openly in the sense of you know, giving us that attention that we wanted from men anyway. That's kind of a dumb way to understand the text because the Lord is condemning that. He's, he's saying you're going to be rewarded. And that reward may come in the eternal future and you may be rewarded openly, but then you're not going to have that problem of seeking attention in some, kind of, in some kind of false, pious way before God. So God rewards conduct that matches his character. He punishes conduct that does not match his character. And here he's saying he's going to reward conduct that is private in its devotion to God. God will reward your private devotional life as only he can see and only he can do in the future. We can count on this. Some of us who are seemingly outwardly religious will not receive much reward, and others who now seem to be quiet and outwardly uninvolved in the Christian life will be rewarded richly for their charitable deeds, for their prayers, and the fasting that they do. Just be careful about judging others that you look at and say, hmm, they don't seem to be very involved in the things of the Christian life. They may just be very much involved and you just don't know about it because they're carrying it out in the right way before God. So, yeah, be careful about that. Now, uh, I'm running short on time here, but let me touch on a couple of other things about fasting that we find in the Old Testament. And I won't have you turn to all these because we have short time, but think with me. Remember Moses? There was something very significant about Moses and fasting. Remember how long he fasted? Remember, Ann? Right, and how many times did he do that? Did he do it once or more than once? Yeah, he did it twice. Moses fasting 40 days and nights and without water. Now, to me, that appears to be due to the miraculous sustenance of God. I mean, if I went four days without water, I would perish, much less 40, you know, food. Wow. So Jesus did something similar, didn't he? Remember that? Matthew chapter 4, in the, right before the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. And it says afterward he was hungry. 
Yep, that's right. I would be too. <laughs> yeah, talk about hangry. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's self-control that our Lord had, and Moses as well. Um, anyway, that's, a, that's an extensive example of fasting. Acts 27. Uh, Paul and his people are on that boat on the way to Rome, remember? And Paul advises them, look, the fast, capital F, is already passed. Don't take this boat out into the open sea. Why? Because it's very bad weather and you're going to get caught up in some storm, and indeed they did. So that is the use of the word fast that was on the Jewish calendar. It was the Day of Atonement. That fast was in late September, October, and so thus you can imagine the fall weather is coming on, then winter is coming right after it, and there's going to be terrible storms on the Mediterranean, and nobody wants to be out there in a small boat with 276 people on it, and uh, yet they, they didn't listen to Paul. They just went ahead with their, their plan. So fasting was a Jewish practice, the fast was a Jewish ordinance uh, regarding the Day of Atonement, and it was not carried over into the church. Why was that? Why is that? Well, the Jews today even still have a ritual of the Day of Atonement, but they have no atonement. That's not good. They have a Day of Atonement, but no atonement. There's no In the Jewish system, there's no way that sins are paid for. They don't even have animal sacrifices now, right? So even if they had animal sacrifices, it wouldn't be sufficient or proper, but they don't even have those. So they, they afflict themselves and they have uh, fasting and prayers and, and that whole ritual. And look, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this to get anybody angry, especially our Jewish friends, but I'm saying... Challenge yourself to figure out what is going to happen with your sins. For us, we are joyful because our sins have been paid for by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have a completed atonement, so we don't have the need to annually fast because of our sins. Old Testament examples of fasting also include times of national calamity. This list is in my notes if you want to have it sometime. Fasting includes commemoration of, a, of the aversion of a national calamity. So in Esther, uh, Esther says to Mordecai and the others, look, you fast, so I go and I'm going to try to get us saved here. And then after they had this incident, then they had fasting and celebration. That's kind of a different example, isn't it? But reflecting on what they did to avert that national National disaster. Then there was fasting in the case of national sins. Remember the uh, sin of, of taking uh, wives illegally in Ezra and Nehemiah? They fasted over that. There was fasting over the mourning of a leader. Uh, in the case of Saul, uh, he was killed and they fasted. David fasted over the severe illness of a child. Remember, that child eventually passed away, and David, when that happened, he, got, he found out the child had died. He got up and he started eating again, and they said, why are you doing that? Well, he said, fasting to be heard by God, but he didn't, so now I have to move on. 
fasting to seek God's protection from danger. You might remember Ezra traveling from Babylon to uh, the, to the promised land, to Israel. And he said, it says there, I was ashamed to ask for a, a guard of soldiers to protect us. So they fasted and prayed and asked God to protect them. Uh, fasting is also uh, sometimes the false fasting of hypocrites. In Zechariah chapter 7, the people ask God about fasting in I think the se- second and fifth month or the fifth and the ninth month, whatever. I can't remember the numbers exactly, but they, uh, they asked about that, and God said, look, that was useless. That was false fasting of religious hypocrites, of, re- of, of disobedient religionists. God said, what I'd rather have than fasting is obedience. Obedience. Same with Saul. Remember, uh, either sacrifice or obedience was the issue. And, of course, Samuel said to him, look, Forget, forget sacrifice. God wants you to obey, man. Uh, sometimes uh, fasting was used in the Old Testament to pray for others who were sick. Psalm 35 talks about the king praying for those who were ill and uh, trying to uh, see if God would raise them up from their bed of sickness. Fasting had to do with being troubled about a bad decision. Remember Darius throws Daniel in the lion's den, and what did he do all that night? fasted. He wouldn't have any food. He was upset about the bad decision that he had made that endangered Daniel's life. Fasting is an expression of repentance, Joel 2. It's an expression of devotion to God. Uh, Cornelius fasted. Now that's in Acts 10, so it's not in the Old Testament per se, but guess what? He was really standing on Old Testament footing, wasn't he? Because he didn't know about Christ or the New, New Covenant, New Testament at all. So in a sense, it was still an Old Testament situation. He expressed devotion to God that way. And there are a number of other uh, passages as well. I'll let you look at those another time. So we close with this note again. Fasting is optional for the Christian. It's to be done privately for the reasons uh, that are discussed in the notes here we have above. If it can be a help to you to focus, to pray, repent, to intercede, then do please make use of it. But whether you fast or not fast, do be a person of serious prayer. You must, we must do that. The people of devotion to God and with an inherent willingness to give up things that would distract us in our relationship to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you again tonight and we ask that you'd help us to process this matter of fasting. Although we don't have commands, we do have much teaching on it throughout the Bible. And we also have difficult circumstances that come our way. And that may call for a time of fasting and concentrated prayer. I pray for each one of us in our different circumstances, church-wide and also Uh, individually, that we would have wisdom about when to consider having a voluntary abstinence from food so that we could focus our attention for a few extra hours on prayer. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It occurs to me, too, that, you know, sometimes we have such convenient time of making food that... Uh, it's not as long of a process as it was perhaps hundreds of years ago. Uh, 
Think of the amount of time we spend preparing food, the amount of money we spend or proportion of our income on food. It's much less than it was back in the day, so to speak. I mean, if you were making cornbread, what would you start with? Not Jiffy Mix. <laughs> Corn, you know. So it might take you a mite bit longer to make that cornbread. So maybe we have some of that effect also impacting us, that, 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 that food is not taking up as much time as what it used to. However, it still takes time. Ask your mom, Jackson, about that. Yeah, right? <laughs> All right. Amen. Well, I understand that the young people had a little pizza and ice cream, and I think they may have a piece left over. So, if you young people that are left here would like to check it out, don't be too disappointed if they've eaten all of it already, okay? But maybe you want to go and see if you can snag a piece, okay? We'll enjoy some fellowship. And we're going to turn on the Zoom call just now as well, so hopefully we can see uh, uh, some of the church family who is not able to be here this evening. All right, God bless you. Thank you for participating tonight, those of you online as well as those here in the building. Amen. Good night.